This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel. Here in the studio, we have Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. From our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And from our office in Jerusalem, Brent Noctegal. Hi. The war in Ukraine has gone on nearly two months. It's resulted in unexpected setbacks for Russia. So Vladimir Putin is recalibrating and sending the war into round two. To hear about the latest developments, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, it is clear now that after Russia's decision a couple of weeks ago to pull out of Kiev and a couple of other cities there in the north, the war has now entered round two. And this, uh, this new phase is essentially Russia focusing on capturing the eastern parts of Ukraine, the region that's generally called the Donbass. So this is the area that Russia recognized as independent several years back, and it's been engaged in fighting there against Ukraine for years now. But of course, what we're seeing right now is a dramatic escalation of that warfare. And the area that Russia wants is about two-thirds larger than what it had previously recognized as independent. And watching this new phase, it is clear that the Russians have learned some lessons from all of those blunders that they were committing in the first few weeks of the war. Vladimir Putin has put new leadership on the ground. Supply chains are functioning much better now. That's partly because they're much shorter, you know, just right across the border there from Russia. Uh, this also appears to be much more methodical so far than those blitz-type efforts that we saw against Kiev and other cities. But despite all of that, the Russian soldiers do have low morale. You know, it's, it's stunning, I think, to listen to some of the intercepted phone calls that show this. The Russians have an overall force that's been depleted by possibly as much as 25% since February 24th when the war started. So that's a big part of why many of them just don't really have their hearts in it at this point. The Ukrainians, meanwhile, are just brimming with confidence, and they're beginning to receive serious shipments of long-range weapons from the West, led by the United States. These are howitzers, attack helicopters and warplanes, anti-aircraft and anti-ship missiles, armed drones of all kinds and tanks, armored vehicles, even some Russian-made S-300 air defense missiles from Slovakia. So, you know, Ukraine is still outmanned and it's still outgunned by Russia. But history shows, and military strategists agree, that unless an invading power has a force at least three times greater than the defending force, then it's going to have considerable difficulty winning battles. The, you know, the home court advantage is just massive, especially when the defenders know that it's an existential threat that right. they're facing. Um, so it's too soon to know how it's all going to shake out in eastern Ukraine. But I do think that Putin's goal of being able to announce victory on May 9th, that's, you know, that's Russia's big victory day celebration every year. And that's when he wants to be able to announce victory. But I think that that is unlikely to happen by then, even with this very downscaled victory, um, you know, from what he originally aimed for, just given the force ratios, the morale and the major armaments that are finally coming into Ukraine. Yeah, not only does uh, the home court advantage matter, but also uh, the morale of the 
soldiers makes a big difference in uh, the outcome of a war as well. And it's quite striking, just as you're describing the the two sides in this conflict. Uh, Russia does have a whole lot of aces up its sleeve. uh, And um, there was actually an announcement of a change in leadership in the war uh, this week. Yes, one that I think is pretty significant. This is uh, Vladimir Putin just appointed Alexander Dvornikov as Supreme Commander in Ukraine. This is the man who cut his teeth as a wartime commander during the Second Chechen War, and then he later led Moscow's offensive in Syria. So Dvornikov, he's shown himself to be absolutely ruthless. He is a proponent of those Soviet-era tactics of these, uh, you know, just massive concentrated strikes that decimate cities. And he's a proponent of using what is essentially terror to frighten civilian populations into fleeing. So Yeah, under his leadership, I think we can expect just massive assault forces. We should also expect more focus on aviation and multiple rocket launcher systems, probably a big increase in the use of artillery, which we're already seeing um, just in the few days that he's he's been in charge. Um, and, And we're seeing Russia gather more and more resources for all of that. So this will be slower than what Russia had originally hoped for. But even if it's at a glacial pace, Russia will gain ground with these kinds of tactics. And it's hard to see how the Donbass could keep from falling for more than a few months. Give us a a sense of what prophecy tells us about what the outcome might be. Sure, yes. Uh, Well, Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry wrote an article. It's actually in our newest edition of the Philadelphia Trumpet. And it's all about Russia's war on Ukraine. And he writes about how this is something that he has specifically been warning about for many years now, um, particularly Vladimir Putin's leadership of Russia. One part of his article says, I've been warning for years that Vladimir Putin would be responsible for violent conquests and would set in motion some astonishing and historic events. And then he, he goes on from there to explain that the reason why he's been warning about Putin is because of Bible prophecy. And so he spends a lot of time examining a passage in Ezekiel 38, and and he explains that this chapter, it discusses an individual that's called the Prince of Russia, if it's, you know, translated correctly there. And Mr. Fleury says that refers to Vladimir Putin. So it's a really powerful article with many details, and I would just recommend that any listener who is concerned right now about these events with Russia and Ukraine and wants to understand them in the true big picture context, I'd recommend looking that article up and just spending some time carefully reading it along with your Bible. Um, Once again, that's called Bible Prophecy Comes Alive in Ukraine. All right. Thank you, Jeremiah. Amid the war in Ukraine, Putin flexed his military muscle another way this week, launching a potent new intercontinental ballistic missile. For this story, we'll go to Richard Palmer. Yes, we got some dramatic footage from a Russian nuclear test where they've launched or they've tested their Satan 2 missile. Satan 2 missile is uh, NATO's designation for it. And uh, it is, well, one one expert, uh, Ian Williams, a fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, he said this is probably the most destructive single weapon on Earth. So uh, that's what he just tested. It's a nuclear weapon that is very fast. It is maneuverable, so it's very hard to intercept. Uh, it carries between 10 and 15 different warheads that are independently targetable. So you could put in 10 huge 
warheads onto this one missile. And then each of those 10 warheads could hit a different city. It's a super heavy missile, uh, 200 tons. Uh, and it's basic, you know, people will talk about this in terms of being able to take out an entire European country or a an entire US state. I mean, if you think about those 10 independently targeted warheads, uh, you, you take out 10 cities in most states and, and you that's the whole state gone. Uh, the uh, they, Russia talked about how this missile test or this ballistic missile was a, a present to NATO that would make Moscow's enemies think twice. Vladimir Putin gave an address to commemorate the occasion. He said, this is a big, significant event in the development of advanced weapon systems of the Russian army. The new complex, the new complex has the highest tactic tactical and technical characteristics and is able to overcome all modern means of missile defense. This truly unique weapon will strengthen the combat potential of our armed forces, reliably ensure Russia's security from external threats, and provide food for thought for those who, in the heart of frenzied aggressive rhetoric, try to threaten our country. Now, this, this Satan II missile has been in development for a long time. It's not like Russia only just came up with this missile after invading Ukraine. But at the same time, you, you, you have to see this missile test in context of everything else that's going on. America had a scheduled missile test, a nuclear missile test of their Minuteman 3 missile recently, and they canceled it because America said, well, we don't want to escalate. We don't want to seem like we're threatening a nuclear response or anything like that. So they canceled their test. Russia, you know, very poignantly did not cancel it and instead even up the publicity and gave a special speech from the president to commemorate the occasion. So they are quite clearly using this test to send a message. We're a nuclear power. In fact, we have some of the top nuclear weapons on Earth. Don't test us. It's quite a provocative message. And uh, it's interesting that this is happening not only in the middle of the war in Ukraine and Russia just demonstrating its uh, its conviction and its uh, its continued determination to to show itself as a strong power. But you also have Europe at the same time looking at what is happening, discussing not only uh, the need to unify and to increase their military capacity uh, as a Europe-wide force, but also to boost its nuclear power. That's right. And this is something Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has talked specifically about. He actually had a key of David all the way back in 2004, uh, where he talked exactly about Vladimir Putin, nuclear weapons, and how well you need to watch Europe's response to this, that they're right next door to Russia. They see the character of this individual that's got these nuclear bombs and they're, uh, you know, they're very worried about what exactly he could do with that. And uh, I think it is especially interesting to look at that in context of what you're seeing from the, the European press. So just over a week ago, Spiegel Online, uh, Europe's largest news magazine, Germany's one of Germany's top news magazines, they had an article, a European bomb Debate over nuclear deterrence heats up in the EU. And that article said dependence on American nukes could ultimately be more dangerous than dependence on Russian gas, which is a pretty astonishing, astonishing statement. But uh, you know, this is an article talking directly about, well, we don't th at the moment for Germany, they've borrowed some nuclear weapons from America. They've got a they've I think there's a few hundred within Europe. Uh, but this whole article is basically saying that's not good enough. It talks about how 
uh, Russia's the biggest threat from Russia is rooted in in nuclear def- in nuclear missiles. Europe needs its own nuclear defense. We can't depend on America. So Europe, we need to come up with our own nuclear defense. And a lot of the article talks about well, maybe there could be some kind of uh, sharing with with France. Uh, and the article goes on to to talk to various different politicians. One said that they would like to see such talks embedded in efforts to form a real political union. So this advance towards Europe having a nuclear power that can face off against Russia uh, in response to, or, or uh, and then that leading to this whole kind of political union, which is exactly what we've been saying for years, exactly what Herbert W. Armstrong said, exactly what uh, what Mr. Flurry has been saying, that fear of Russia is going to prompt Europe to come towards a political union and make these massive changes. And you see this playing out exactly as forecast on this issue of, of nuclear weapons. And we have an article up on our website a couple of days ago, Germany is transforming before your eyes from, from Mr. Flurry, where he talks about this and goes through some of the statements that he's made in the past. In our Trumpet print edition, there's a, uh, there's a section in there that goes through and pulls out some of these statements that Mr. Armstrong made along these lines. So, you know, we're talking about massive nuclear weapons that can wipe out entire countries. It is by its nature uh, a very serious, very sober topic and one we may not uh, like to necessarily think about. But it is also a topic that is just full of direct proof uh, of Bible prophecy, direct proof that these scriptures written thousands of years ago are being fulfilled before your eyes. It's direct proof of God's involvement in world events. And so there's great hope in these events too, as they point us to to the fact that all of these events, as, as scary as they may sound, and as weapons like the Satan 2 missile may sound, it's all unfolding according to, to God's plan. Well, the more provocative Russia gets, the more uh, Europe is going to feel the necessity to respond in kind. And uh, this not only reminds me of that new article from Gerald Flurry, Germany is transforming before our eyes, but also the booklet that he wrote, Nuclear Armageddon is at the Door, which uh, just goes through several biblical prophecies showing that this threat of nuclear warfare actually leveling cities is very real. Uh, There are a lot of prophecies that describe in quite horrific detail uh, cities without inhabitant and uh, the effects of nuclear warfare on masses of population. Uh, We'll link to that booklet in our show notes as well as that article from Gerald Flurry. And uh, it's just quite extraordinary to watch this continued face-off between uh, Europe and Russia to develop in light of what Gerald Flurry has been saying for so many years about that relationship. Thank you very much for that, Richard. Putin's Satan 2 test wasn't the only missile fired this week. Israel carried out a wave of airstrikes in Gaza in response to a Palestinian rocket attack. Tensions and violence in the Jewish state are heating up. To learn about this, we'll turn to Brent Noctegal. Yeah, we've seen a a bit of a return to the violence that we saw back in May uh, 2021 take place where you have uh, Israel responding responding kind of forcefully to any type of action from Hamas's run Gaza Strip firing into Israel. It was only one rocket that was fired overnight on Wednesday night, uh, and then a lot of gunfire, actually, uh, heavy gunfire, anti-aircraft gunfire that was actually mistakenly picked up by Israel's Iron Dome and... Um, there was a salvo of anti, 
anti-missile projectiles that were fired by the anti that by Israel at those, but really it does speak to the the heightened sense of danger that we're in right now with with the uh, almost daily riots that are taking place on the Temple Mount here in Jerusalem, and how Hamas is kind of really leveraging that. Uh, violence on there uh, that's taking place here uh, in Jerusalem to try and motivate more Arabs to 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 rise up and fight against Israel, and then also perhaps start another war, rocket war on Israel as well. It's it has been interesting to watch because. It, this really just did start about a month ago where you had uh, four very violent attacks on Jews uh, where 14 Israelis were killed. That started back on uh, in the middle of March. And then on April 5th, there was a, a, a deadly shooting inside in Tel Aviv. We spoke about that at the time uh, at a bar where three Israelis were killed. And then you had a response by the by Israel going into the West Bank, finding different terrorist cells, and then killing about 20 uh, Palestinians that were terrorists involved in terrorist activity. And since that time, if we go back now till about April 14th, uh, so this is last week around this time, you had Hamas really pick up its rhetoric, trying to mobilize the Arabs uh, to come out against Israel. Uh, Hamas at that point called on the Palestinians to mobilize on the yards of the blessed Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is the Temple Mount, to protect it from the colonial settler extremist groups storming of Al-Aqsa and to thwart their plans to desecrate Al-Aqsa and so on. And so you've had violence against Israelis, Israeli military come back and take out some terrorist cells, and then daily riots uh, on the Temple Mount with Hamas being a key instigator uh, here once again. What what would you say is uh, Hamas's game plan here? This is uh, a clear uh, strategic escalation on their part. Yeah, I think it. I think it is, and it, it it sees. It really does seem exactly the same as what happened in in twenty eleven, uh, twenty twenty one. Sorry, last year, um, the United States is actually kind of getting involved right now as well, kind of um, giving. Uh, equal equivalence to what the Palestinian terrorists are doing and what Israel is doing. You've had a a visit today or on Thursday um, by a delegation from the State Department, and they're meeting with the Israeli foreign minister. Well, they met with him, and you can see from the rhetoric that they they call on both sides to calm down, both sides to stop escalations uh, on the Temple Mount, preserve calm, which is this similar type of rhetoric we saw. Um, last year, when you had uh, the the issues coming up with uh, Sheikh Jarrah, as we talked about, and how the United States said, you know, Israel should stop their evacuations or their removal of Palestinians from their homes. And it kind of gave a green light that that showed that the U.S. did not consider the Palestinians as the instigators uh, in these attacks. And thus, you have Hamas seems to kind of take their cues from that. They'll increase their rhetoric as well. Hamas came out on Thursday and said, we are still at the very beginning of this battle, calling on more rioters to go onto the Temple Mount. Um, and, you know, what what choice does Israel have right now? It's, it's Ramadan. So if they shut down the Temple Mount, you've got 50,000, 80,000 Arabs that can't get to the Temple Mount, the third holiest site in Islam for Ramadan, that's going to set off a firestorm. So they lat them on the Temple Mount. 
And then what happens? You have three or 400 of them start rioting, throwing rocks, bringing explosives, turning the Al-Aqsa Mosque into a, a weapons cache to be used against Israeli, uh, Israeli police. Israeli police then have to storm the mosque uh, to, to try and stop the violence emanating from there. And then you see social media light up with pictures of Israeli forces inside the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And you have all the Arab states, the Iranians, uh, Hamas going off, um, uh, kind of inciting their own population, saying that we need to stop what Israel is doing, taking over Al-Aqsa. And so you have this huge narrative war going on. Last year, it really did favor Hamas. And we talked about how this was Hamas's goal, not just to be a, you know, a thorn in Israel's side, but to show itself as leading all of the Palestinian struggle or the Arab struggle against Israel. Uh, there was a, a comment that was uh, given. This was um, a senior researcher at, at uh, the Institute of National Security Studies in Tel Aviv, Kobe Michael. I think he was a, he's a former, former IDF general, I believe he said this, while Hamas has, what Hamas has been trying to do since last May is to unify all the fronts together in order to have a terror fist against the state of Israel to be operated when they find it suitable. And so you have the narrative war that Hamas massages, you have the instigation of violence from Hamas and its affiliates that then promote Israeli, make it Israel look to be bad, and then try and mobilize not just its forces from Gaza, but also mobilize Israeli Arabs from Israel proper, and then also terrorists from the West Bank as well, to show itself as leading this full frontal attack against the state of Israel. And we have one more week or uh, just over a week left of Ramadan. And so it does not seem to be going down or dying down this violence at all. And uh, we'll just have to see what the next week uh, brings. I'm just reminded of Gerald Flurry's statement after Joe Biden took office in the United States that he felt like this was going to lead to an increase in Palestinian terror attacks and uh, and also about just the the uh, political instability in Israel uh, with the Knesset in uh, shambles and and the uh, the majority coalition uh, ac actually facing some uh, some kind of uh, a reckoning here coming up and who knows exactly what's going to happen politically where Israel will be. But this uncertainty is it, it really couldn't be coming at a worse time. Uh, do you feel like there may be some uh, motivation on the part of the Palestinians and Hamas to take advantage of that right now? It's hard to see because I think the government that is in power right now is is a real good friend of Hamas. Well, not a friend of Hamas, but the most friendly, uh, I think, Israeli government that you could hope for with even an, an Islamist party inside the government uh, and then a lot of left-leaning parties as well there. And so it's hard to see that they want this government gone to return to right-wing, uh, more of a right-wing government. Um, but perhaps they want that as well, because if that happens again, they can they can use the response that Israel has to try and motivate more of the Arab streets to their favor. Um, you did have the Ra'am party. This is the Arab party that's inside the Knesset freeze uh, inside the government, freeze their membership of the coalition, uh, basically saying that we're not supporting the Israeli response uh, against what's going on. And so we've got, I think, two more weeks of the recess that the Knesset's under. And so 
we've got one more week of Ramadan, two more weeks where there's nothing going to happen on the Israeli uh, Knesset scene. And when that ends, yeah, it'll be political chaos. I don't see how this government continues. So we might be seeing a return uh, to elections for Israel. But then again, as I, I think I brought out in the Trumpet Daily last week, you'll probably see Israel in the short term even shift further left by virtue of this co- weird rotation coalition agreement where Yair Lapid, uh, center to the left uh, leader, kind of the Israeli Democrat, he will be coming into power if there's a no confidence vote removing Naftali Bennett, the right wing prime minister. So very interesting political situation in Israel now. I think what people can take away from this is Hamas is becoming not just the leader of a terrorist faction um, inside the Gaza Strip, but it is climbing to the top of leadership over the Palestinian struggle. And they've recognized that it's not about nationhood. Palestinian nationalism does not motivate the Palestinian street, the Arab street. Uh, Two states does not motivate the Arab street, even though that's what a lot of people are hung up on. Al-Aqsa, fortifying Al-Aqsa from Israeli Jewish settler feet, as they call it, is the thing that's going to motivate the Arabs. And Mr. Flurry has talked about how Hamas wants to vie for leadership, of course, led by Iran, don't forget that, over the Palestinian street through Hamas, and that the Temple Mount is going to be the chief cause, the chief motivator for that. And this is what we're seeing play out. Mr. Flurry writes about this uh, in his book, Jerusalem in Prophecy. Uh, I think people can read that to get all the back details of this. We'll link to that booklet in the show notes, as well as Brent's trumpet brief from last week. Biden's and Bennett's days are numbered. We appreciate you bringing that to us, Brent. A different type of battle is heating up in Florida as Governor Ron DeSantis ramps up his war with Disney over indoctrinating children with transgenderism. For this story, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. A number of years ago, I read an article by Mark Stein titled, Why the Real Battle for America is Over Culture, Not Elections. Uh, and he made the point quite strongly that culture trumps elections. He says, if the culture's liberal, if the schools are liberal, if the churches are liberal, if the hip, groovy business elite is liberal, if the guy who makes the movies and the pop songs are liberal, then electing a guy with a Republican after his name is not going to make much difference. And he really hit the nail, I think, on the head as to why America's sliding left. Well, uh, conservatives up till recently have been mostly concerned with getting a Republican president, getting Republicans on the Supreme Court. Uh, liberals have been busy taking over your child's school board and, and making sure there's a, like I said, a homosexual couple in, in DuckTales and others' child's programming. Now, Ron DeSantis has taken... Uh, a stand against this, finally, where he has this bill in Florida that we've talked about on this program before uh, that basically is taking a baby step <laughs> towards towards fighting this by banning even talking about gender identity or sexuality to kindergartners through third graders, uh, basically saying this, like I said, we shouldn't be indoctrinating any of our children about homosexuality until at least they've uh, until they've at least hit puberty. Uh, and Disney's fought back hard on this, basically taking their considerable uh, political heft in the state of Florida to try to get this law overturned. But uh, 
this is really an example where the uh, DeSantis and the Republicans in Florida are not are not taking this lying down. They've actually introduced another bill this year. Instead of instead of letting the old one get revoked, they um, introduced another one that would basically strip Disney of its special status in Reed County, Florida. It, it's kind of weird they even have this status. It, it's mm-hmm. basically like the Vatican, you know, where it's both <laughs> a church and a state, where where Disney's a multinational media corporation but its headquarters in reed county florida i mean they run the utilities they collect the taxes or at least assess the taxes uh they're giving the licensing for new construction which is mostly them like disney world they don't have to get local compliance to build anything because they're actually the local government um that's amazing in reed county so this is basically desantis's attempt to to fight, push back at Disney for pushing back at him over this bill is to introduce another bill, basically stripping them of that right, uh, making Reed County a regular local Florida county, uh, and then uh, having Disney operate like a like a normal company, just be a way to punish them. Some other Republicans at the National Congress are also looking at um, getting the Mickey Mouse copyright revoked uh that mickey mouse was made his debut in 1928 so his copyright should have expired decades ago except they keep lobbying congress to have it extended uh which is another way between the the mickey mouse copyright and the status of reed county basically just letting disney know that if you fight us on this uh on this gender education bill uh we're gonna fight you yeah. Uh, in, in hopes that kind of see get it come back down, which is kind of some a, a bit of a fighting spirit you haven't seen in Republicans right. in a long in a long time. Yeah, uh, he did similar thing with Twitter. Actually, we talked about this if you watched the Wednesday program about like Elon Musk bid to buy Twitter, privatize it, and actually let uh, conservatives speak on there without being censored. Mm-hmm. Uh, Twitter's uh, adopted what's they've they've called the poison pill strategy, where they basically say that anyone who owns more than 15% of the shares and the only one who wants to own more than 15% of the shares is Elon Musk will let the other shareholders buy additional shares at a discounted price to dilute the shares so you don't have 15% anymore which is basically destroying the value of your own company uh, by diluting your shares to almost nothing in order to stop someone from getting enough shares to privatize it Hmm. Uh, which, which does show how bad Twitter does not want Elon Musk to take over. But Ron DeSantis pointed out that um, the Florida State Pension Funds owns almost a million shares in Twitter, which gives him some legal heft for lawsuits against the board of directors at Twitter if uh, if they try to destroy the value of their shares uh, in order to prevent elon musk who's actually offering to buy their shares for more, much more than they're worth mm-hmm. uh, from taking over this com- from company uh yeah again it's another story where the sand is at the center of it but that does show like a fighting spirit you haven't seen republicans in a long time where they're realizing that uh, it's not enough just to get <laughs> uh donald trump in the white house or brett kavanaugh on the supreme court uh if you're if you're actually going to turn the nation around uh, you have to stop the schools, uh, the big media companies like Twitter, uh, the the big entertainment companies like Disney from 
indoctrinating the next generation because if that happens that's why now uh you listen to a republican like donald trump talk and he he sounds like a democrat from reagan's time right uh, because yeah. it's you you just shift the whole spectrum because you're you're conservative compared to the democrats but the the entertainment industry just pushing the whole country left yeah, it is important to uh, to to see the big picture in this. I think what Ron DeSantis is doing is is definitely praiseworthy, and uh, you can applaud him. Uh, it is one tiny battle uh, in a massive cultural war that's taking place, and in some ways, I think there are people that look at what other other leaders are doing and taking a certain amount of. A courage from uh, a Ron DeSantis or a Donald Trump. Uh, it is rare to see someone who's willing to stand up and fight the way that these men are. Um, but I, as you said, when you look at the the big picture, just how many uh, avenues of of modern life that the left controls and that they just continue to push their uh, their agenda, you see that there is a whole lot that needs to be done beyond. Uh, Anything that even a few bills is going to um, is is going to make a difference in right. And if you if you look at our editor in chief, Mister Gerald Floyd's book, Great Again, he makes that point pretty strongly in there. I mean, he that that book definitely exposes a lot of the corruption amongst America's politicians. But he do, he does definitely have a strong caution in there. Begin it's being. Um, uh, too eager to point the fingers at the politicians because he said the the curses are the results of the the sins of the American people uh, in general. He has one statement there. He says that no politician's going to make America great again uh, because it's going to take national. It would take national repentance to do that, and that's really what he's he's talking about here. Is like said as long as you uh, you can't have a conservative government in a in a liberal culture, and so e- even if you have a Oh, a couple good politicians to try to make some common sense laws. Like I said, I said, as long as you've got a culture that uh, that just basically eats up everything Disney produces, no matter how <laughs> how vile uh, vile it is, uh, the the conservative the conservative movement might be slowing down America's slide to the left, but it's not it's not stopping it and definitely not reversing it. Well, we will uh, link to that uh, that booklet, Great Again, in uh, the show notes. We'll also link to uh, an article that Gerald Flurry wrote, What Will Happen After Trump Regains Power. And this, these uh, culture wars, they are going to, uh, according to Bible prophecy, take a bit of a turn uh, in the direction of the Ron DeSantis's and the Donald Trump's of this world. You can read that article to find out how. Thank you very much for that, Andrew. You're listening to Trumpet Hour coming up. We'll talk about strengthening relations among Asian nations with Russia in spite of the horror in Ukraine, violent religious riots in Sweden, Americans continuing to support the state of Israel, and record drought covering the entire western United States. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Even with Russia at war and demonstrating its willingness to commit terrible atrocities against the Ukrainian people, other Asian nations 
are not only unconcerned, they're actually strengthening their partnership with Russia. For this story, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, this was on Tuesday that China's foreign ministry announced that no matter what happens with Russia's massacre of Ukrainians and with the Western attempts at isolating Russia, despite how any of that may go, China will strengthen strategic cooperation with Russia. The, uh, the specific statement said, quote, no matter how the international landscape may change, China will continue to strengthen strategic coordination with Russia to achieve win-win cooperation, to jointly safeguard our common interests, and to promote the building of a new type of international relations. End quote. So, you know, some, some very pointed language there. And this is already actually going beyond talk as well. In the realm of economics, there has been a 30% increase in Russia-China trade during the first quarter of this year. And China is now working to further increase that. But uh, when, whenever there's a situation like this Russian war, many in the West seem to be just bursting with optimism that China will join the side of sanity and help the, the West to kind of isolate Russia. But every time it's the same defiance from China. No matter what Russia does, China is with them. So I think it's very sobering to see this, and it does reveal just how naive that kind of Western optimism about China is. China isn't the only uh, Asian nation that is demonstrating this kind of solidarity with Russia. No, it's not. It's also India. And uh, this has been just a major disappointment for many in the U.S. and Britain and elsewhere in the West, because India, you know, it's a it's a democracy, the world's largest democracy. It's a largely English speaking country as well. It also works to portray itself as a reliable partner to the U.S. and other Western countries. But since Putin began butchering the people of Ukraine, we have been given a long look at the true face of India's leadership, and it's grotesque. From the beginning, India has refused to condemn Putin's barbarism, and this week India actually resumed its exports to Russia. Exports of rice, tea, fruit, coffee, and all kinds of other products, those are all at full steam once again. And then India is also now back to buying Russian oil. It had uh, discontinued those purchases back in February, but now they are resumed and even apparently um, increasing in terms of the quantity of oil that, that India is buying. So while the West is trying to put pressure on Russia so that the Russian people understand just you know how appalled the world is by their war, India is coming along and mitigating that pressure. And in doing so, India is supporting an invasion that's unleashing just unfathomable suffering on millions of people. There was a little bit of good news on Wednesday out of India with uh, Tata Steel. That's one of India's largest companies. And they announced that they have stopped all business with Russia. But that's just one company. And the Indian government is pushing in the other direction, just doing all that it can apparently to support Putin's brutality. So you mentioned just uh, how disappointing it is to see these Asian nations siding with Russia. Uh, but when you're looking at this through the lens of Bible prophecy, this is exactly what we would expect. In fact, the fact that this is happening under these conditions 
really does uh, just underscore how reliable biblical prophecy is, because it talks exactly about this kind of alliance, and even under the the sort of adversity that we're describing here. That's exactly right. Yes, and and this is something that Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry has written about, uh, even in our most recent edition of the Philadelphia Trumpet. He wrote an article called, Asia Still Stands with Putin. I'll just read one quote from that. It says, Western nations see the war as a clear example of Putin's deadly despotism. But what about the East? Two of the largest, most populous, most powerful nations in the world are supporting Putin. This is a stunning fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And, you know, then from there, he looks at those specific prophecies. He, he uh, focuses on one in the book of Revelation, Revelation 9.16, which says that a massive group of Asian nations will soon emerge. And it'll be led by that same prince of Russia that we spoke about in the first half of, of the show today. And this passage here in Revelation says that this group of Asian nations will field an army of 200 million soldiers. So that's far more than Russia would be able to field on its own. But once you factor in China's 1.4 billion people and India's 1.4 billion people, it's easy to see how you could get to those kinds of numbers of soldiers very easily. Mm-hmm. So to see, you know, to see China and India right now supporting Putin, this really is setting the stage for these Asian giants to be grouped all together in this Asian alliance led by Vladimir Putin. Yeah, not only does it uh, show their determination to pull together, but it also shows the kind of brutality that that uh, Kings of the East alliance will inflict on mankind, that they are supportive of of what Russia is doing and seem totally undeterred, even as uh, evidence of, of the, the scale of the atrocities and the barbarity of the atrocities that Russia is committing uh, become evident. Uh, we will link to that article from Mr. Flurry, Asia Still Stands with Putin, as well as a booklet that has gotten a whole lot of attention uh, and uh, a lot of interest here over the last couple of months as Russia has been undertaking this war, Russia and China in Prophecy. Go check out the show notes to uh, find the links to those pieces of literature. Thanks very much, Jeremiah. Over to Sweden now, where violent riots are taking place, people setting fire to cars, hurling rocks at police officers. What are they protesting? Not what you would probably think. For this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Yes, this is one of Sweden's biggest riots in years. There's, uh, well, I think one police chief talked about how it was the the, the worst that he had ever seen uh, like you said, there, there's fires, there's police officers being attacked. Uh, you know, the police are saying people are actively trying to kill them. And at the heart of this is the Quran. Uh, so there's a, a Danish-Sweden politician called Rasmus Paludan. Uh, he is holding what he calls uh, hardline rallies, uh, Stramkurs, I guess is, is what it is in Sweden, where he goes to these different cities with large Muslim populations and burns the Quran. And then uh, these riots are the result. And uh, so he was in the, 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 the city of Malmo uh, on Saturday or the district of Malmo, and, and you had violence right after that. Uh, and it's a... Uh, it's a, he's been traveling around various different cities, and of course, these riots have been following him. So, it's a story where it's it's a clash of civilizations story. It's a story where an important trend that we keep watching, where you see 
uh, Europe conf- and radical Islam increasingly at odds. And, and you see this on both sides of this story here. I was just looking over uh, you, Mr. Heleke, you, you had an article I guess it's what 10 50 uh just over 10 years ago why Bernard Karande fizzled about a similar effort in the United States uh where somebody was threatening to burn a Quran they didn't actually follow through in this case Sweden is being a, a sterner champion of free speech than the United States was even 10 years ago hmm. where the general response of the Swedish authorities is you know we don't agree with this we don't support book burning but it's his right you know, he, he can hold rallies and burn a Quran if he wants to. We don't have any, we, we have no right or authority to stop him much as we may disagree with him. Uh, so he it, he's actually able to go around and do this where someone in the United States wasn't. Uh, that article back from 2010 talks about how you could you could see a diverging direction between Britain and or between America and Europe. And I think you still see that different different direction. And then, of course, you've got this Muslim response that there is an increasingly violent element in a lot of European cities that are willing to uh, to riot, to, to protest. Well, this isn't protesting. That's a, a euphemism that too much of the media is, mm. is using. It's mm-hmm. violence. Uh, and they're willing to try and use violence uh, to get their way to express their unhappiness. You know, you burn a Quran while we come and we burn a school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What has been the uh, official response uh, on the part of the Swedish government. This is the type of thing that, or even the Swedish media, this is the type of thing that tends to get, uh, they try to cover up or they try to uh, try to minimize exactly what's happening. You mentioned the media just calling this a protest. Um, what what have you seen within Sweden? Well, certainly the international media has worked to to not talk about this. I think these kind of things are hard to, to hide when it's your own country. The BBC talks about the rioters as, quote, counter-demonstrators. You know, very much the language of, well, the bad guys are on the other side and and they're just expressing their disapproval kind of thing rather than talking about, well, you've got some extremists on on both sides, really. So uh, there's a... and, And there's generally been a reluctance to cover this outside of Sweden, outside... So... You know, if this were Black Lives Matter protests, like, or or anything, or if it were you know, almost anything else, there would have been a lot more attention on this. As it is, I think it's something that very much people want to sweep under their carpet. Well, this sort of tension between radical elements within Europe and European uh, nations, this is straight out of biblical prophecy. That's right. And we've got a trends article, Why the Trumpet Watches Iran and Europe Heading for a Clash of Civilizations, that explains exactly why that you've got this passage in Daniel 11 that very directly explains a cla- prophesies of a clash between a European king of the north and a radical Islam led by Iran. And that's still there. It's been eclipsed by other news articles, but you can see this clash building in a direct fulfillment of Bible prophecy. I mean, just this week, ISIS was saying, hey, while Europe's distracted by what's going on in Russia, let's plot a few terrorist attacks. So this story mm-hmm. may not be in the front news as regularly, but it's definitely there. Uh, and this prophesied clash is building. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Richard. The Biden administration has been quite hostile to the Jewish state of Israel. And as violence there increases, the press is also showing its anti-Israelism. We talked about that in the first half, blaming the Jews for Palestinian attacks. A recent poll shows that with the American public, it's a different story. For this, we'll go back to Brent Noctegal. 
Yeah, this is actually quite remarkable, I think, the resilience of the American public to withstand a media onslaught, an elitist onslaught, which seems to paint Israel as the enemy, and Palestinians as good, the Iranians as good, and Israel again as the enemy. And I think this is another example of how this administration pushes really extremely unpopular policies upon the American public. We see it in the domestic culture war, but we also see it in foreign policy. And this is a big example of that. This is a, a study that that was taken place, took place by Gallup back in February, but the results are just coming in. And it's the study says that Israel is considered favorably by 71% of Americans. And Yoram Edinger, former uh, Israeli, I think he was a consular general uh, in the United States. He wrote this about it. He said, Israel is ranked seventh among countries rated by Gallup, trailing Canada, Britain, France, Japan, Germany, and India. However, none of these countries have been targeted as Israel, as has Israel for daily criticism by the State Department, the United Nations, New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, CNN, MSNBC, and many of the other political and social science departments on U.S. campuses. Then he writes, the poll demonstrates the wide gap between most Americans who are largely supportive of Israel and the elite media, which is systematically critical of Israel. And he goes on to talk about several reasons why this would be, uh, just the shared cultural values between the two, uh, the brotherhood, brotherly bonds between the two, between the, the citizens and how of both countries, and how that the US citizens just don't buy into the idea that Israelis are the aggressors, no matter how much the media would like to paint them as such. And I think, again, this is just uh, when we talk about the Biden administration or the Obama administration, how they seek to fundamentally transform America with their, that's their own own words, we see them having to push unpopular uh, changes upon upon American cultural changes. And this is an example of where we see it taking place in terms of foreign policy as well. And I think the American public, at least for now, they're, they're more resilient um, than, than uh, you might expect. All right. Thank you very much for that, Brent. We'll link in the show notes to an article from Stephen Flurry from 2008, Band of Brothers, showing the, uh, the strong links between America and Israel, uh, looked at from the standpoint of our shared history. We appreciate that. One final story, the terrible drought that has struck great portions of the United States. To learn about this, we'll look to Andrew Miller. Yeah, this drought is most likely the worst in 1,200 years. They actually had a pretty uh, uh, pretty in-depth study come out earlier this year from um, some dendrologists that looked basically back at 2,000 years of tree ring data. Uh, and then by looking at the width of the tree ring and able to use it as a proxy to generate soil moisture and, and basically determine that this past 22 years has been drier than any point since the 22 years between uh, 780 and 800 AD, B basically back when like the Mayan civilization collapsed in, in Mexico. Uh, and they think that drought probably had some to do with that. So, I mean, really, when they say it's a historic drought, they're not, they're not kidding. And, and people are starting to feel the effects of it. In addition to just farmers struggling to get water to irrigate their crops, uh, and, and cattlemen reducing the side of their, size of their beefs herds because there's not enough grass to raise the, the number of cattle they used to. It's one of the 
price, beef prices are going up right now. Uh, two major lakes in the Western United States, Lake Mead and Lake Powell, are going dry. Both lakes are 140, uh, maybe even over 140 feet lower than they were in 2000, uh, which is a big deal, not just for the fish, because um, that uh, Lake Powell has the, the Glen Canyon Dam and Lake Mead has the Hoover Dam. Uh, both on the Colorado River, uh, and together they generate enough hydroelectric power uh, to basically power provide the electric needs for five million people. And um, the, the local governments there, they're really pointing out to this. It said when those lakes get below a certain level, and they're getting close to that level, uh, those dams no longer function. Uh, and then you have to, those people are just either out of power or have to find a, a different source of, of power, which is, which is bad timing now. Cause with the Ukraine war and the other inflation problems, I mean, the, the price of gas and the price of oils going mm. up and the, uh, the, uh, Jennifer Granholm at the, the energy secretary is saying that like, well, we need to switch away from oil and gas and, and move over to renewable energy and to, to green energy. And well, in America, when you say renewable energy, about 37% of the renewable energy we generate is, uh, hydroelectric. Mm-hmm. So solar panels aren't necessarily all that reliable. Wind isn't necessarily all that reliable. Uh, hydroelectric is pretty reliable if there's not a once in a millennium drought making the lakes go dry. But uh, between the, the gas prices and the, and the drought, I mean, you could definitely be seeing um, at the end of the year and into next year some, uh, some serious uh, <laughs> power shortages uh, in the Western United States. And we have an article um, uh, online I, I wrote earlier this week called Historic Drought Strains U.S. Power Grid, uh, which goes through the details I just mentioned, uh, but then also points to um, the blessings and cursings chapter back in Leviticus 26, uh, talking about the cursings that come on a nation that disobey God. Uh, one of the more prominent amongst them being, he says, I will make your heaven as iron and your earth as brass and the land won't yield its fruit in its season. And so the land's not yielding its fruit, uh, indicates a lack of rain. And, and definitely if, when you have these visuals of like iron and brass, neither of those are famous for their moisture content. Uh, and so it's pretty clear. It's like a prophecy of like a drought. Um, and a pretty bad one, like I said, in the case <laughs> the case we're getting in the United States, this is uh, the, the, it seems like every year California is a dry place. You hear something about drought in California, but now they're actually quantifying it and been like, no, like the last time uh, the drought was this bad, uh, a major empire in the Western United States fell mm-hmm. uh, the the Demians, and uh, and it could get uh, it could definitely get. Uh, even worse than that drought was if there's not if there's not any rain next year or the year after. It is really important to look at those prophecies. It's something that very few people are willing to do, but those prophecies actually pinpoint the cause for these droughts. It's not global warming and it's not uh, poor uh, energy management or anything else. It really is curses from God. There are very few people that look at these kinds of events and uh, make any kind of connection to our own choices and and whether we're pleasing God or whether he's upset at uh, our actions, but there's a whole lot of reasons why America is suffering these curses at God's hand. And to, to read uh, that article from 
uh, Andrew Miller that puts it in that context would be a good start. We also have a booklet, Why Natural Disasters, that spells out in quite some detail these prophecies of the Bible that show the causes for these events. We thank you for that, Andrew. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that'll do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can email us your thoughts on today's program to letters at thetrumpet.com. I really appreciate these gentlemen, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Richard Palmer, and Brent Noctigal, and also Parker Campbell for engineering and production on today's show. I'll leave you with the words of Alexander Pope. A man should never be ashamed to own he has been in the wrong, which is but saying, in other words, that he is wiser today than he was yesterday. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.